Hi everyone, and welcome to The Seed Podcast, part of our teaching ministry here at the Central Church in Fayette, Alabama. The Seed exists for one reason only, and that is to lift up the Word of God in order that Jesus Christ might be known and worshipped as King. We invite you to join us now as we dive in to today's message. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul says, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Not because we deserve it, not because we've done anything special, but Paul says he can't deny himself. We serve a faithful God and even, and we are, listen, we are unfaithful. We all have turned our back on him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. The gospel does not say, maybe you won't do that and maybe you'll make it all right. The gospel says you will do that. But even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny what he is. Grace to you and peace from that kind of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Exodus 20:14 is our text for this morning. You shall not commit adultery. It's pretty straightforward. There's not much else to add to that. You shall not commit adultery. It hit me as I was preparing for this lesson this week that um, I'm going to have to preach this one a little differently than most other preachers would probably preach it. I believe that God has brought me, brought my family through this particular commandment in such a way that I must be faithful to say what God has given me to say. And so you might not hear this kind of lesson about adultery um, in any other church. You might not have ever heard it at a church before that you've been to. Uh, you don't hear a lesson on adultery too much from preachers who have committed adultery. And you certainly don't hear it too much from preachers who openly talk about that adultery and share it with others. Uh, we talked about murder last week. And you know, we talked about hateful conditions of the heart envious conditions of the heart, murderous conditions of the heart, how we can commit spiritual murder. And I think that's the correct way to approach it. One one hundredth of one percent of the population has committed murder. It's probably not very helpful for you guys to hear a lesson on physical murder, but we certainly need a lesson on spiritual murder. That's where we live. When it comes to adultery, however, Statistics say that one out of every four adults in the U.S. have had an affair, that is a sexual encounter while they were still married to someone else. And the numbers inside the church statistically mirror the numbers outside the church, one in every four Christians. Now, another study was done that says that if you are a consistent churchgoer, you get a five percentage point bump. That is, instead of one out of every four adults, one out of every five consistent church-going adults, statistically speaking, will have had an affair. Now, you might hear statistics like that and think, you got to be kidding me. I mean, one out of every five of us here at church on a Sunday morning, an affair? Are you kidding me? Some of you hear those statistics and you think, I could see it. Yeah, I, I could see that. I believe it. I would suggest you that if we have a hard time believing that statistic, it has mostly to do with the fact that this is a very hush-hush, a very taboo topic in our churches. We don't talk about this much. 
We don't communicate about it. It's hard, and it is hard, and it is hard. If you want to add to that our problem with pornography, 64% of Christian men and, uh, what is it, 15% of Christian women view pornography at least once a month. Add to that, in that number, one out of every five youth pastors and one out of every seven senior pastors struggle with pornography on an ongoing basis. And Jesus says, if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. I think it would be very inappropriate this morning to talk about spiritual adultery. I think it would be flat out inappropriate when there is such a great need to talk about physical adultery. The fact is, there are a large number of our brothers and our sisters harassed by Satan, craving, needing their family, needing a touch from Jesus, needing support. We dare not. We dare not. It'd be unconscionable to let them be harassed by Satan without offering any kind of help. We're not here to talk about adultery this morning to shame anyone. We're not talking about adultery to to make anybody feel any more guilty than they already do. You might be here this morning and you might be in an active affair right now. That is very possible. It's very possible that you're here right now. And the reason you came this morning was you need Jesus to touch you in this place. You need to know that the power of God is real and it is for you. You need to know that He can and He will set you free. That's why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and it's not an ongoing active affair, but it's something from the past. It's a festering wound in your soul that never quite has let go. And you got out of the affair, but the affair never got out of you. And you need healing. You need to know the love of Jesus. You need to see it through your brothers and your sisters. And so, whether you meant to come here on the morning when we were going to talk about adultery or not, God has arranged this meeting for you. Let's talk about adultery. Um, more specifically this morning, I want to talk about the church's posture towards adultery. The message that the church ought to be sending towards its members or others of the community who are caught and entangled in this sin. Um, right now, I'm currently actually putting together a weekend workshop. I'm, I'm hoping to put together a, a whole day Saturday type workshop for church leaders on how to walk with people through an affair. And I'm putting that together because I know how desperately needed it is in our churches. Most of us can say what we think about divorce and remarriage. Most of us can say that we think adultery is wrong. Most of us were never brought up knowing anything about how to actually make it through an affair or walk with somebody through an affair. Now, that workshop I'm putting together is going to take a whole day, and it's going to just scratch the surface. We've got 20 minutes, and uh, good luck to us. So I'm going to really focus in on one aspect, and I think it's the most needed aspect in this room. That is, what is our message? What is our posture towards adultery? First and foremost, it has to be the gospel. First and foremost, it has to be the gospel. Satan destroys an environment of legalism. Jesus sets people free in environments of gospel. We must know and believe and practice and live the gospel. The test of that 
Do we have a gospel culture here in this church? The test of that is, is it the rule or is it the exception that our members here believe firmly in their hearts and in their minds that we are all prodigal children saved by grace? Do I believe that? Do I read the prodigal story and I see that's me. I'm not the good brother. I'm not the father. I am the boy in the pig pen. That is me. Do every single one of us say that? That's the point of that story. That's who I am. That's who you are. Do we know that to the depth of our soul? Do we have a pervasive posture in our church that says our acceptance does not depend on moral perfection? It does not depend on spiritual perfection. We rejoice because we are sinners saved by grace. Do we believe that? Does our church believe in the ongoing redemptive work of Jesus Christ in the world? Do we really believe that people change? I've seen church members before post memes on Facebook, but once a cheater, always a cheater. There's this idea that, you know, people don't really change. Do we believe that people change? Not because they work hard enough to change, but because the Spirit of God truly actually gets into their heart and affects a change from the inside out. Do we believe the Spirit does that? If we can't believe that people can change, then what are we doing? Do we have a gospel culture? And I'll tell you, in a fair will test a gospel culture like nothing else will. An affair will test whether or not we really believe the gospel in this regard. Because if I'm just giving lip service to the gospel, and then this prodigal comes and sits on my pew with that prodigal dirt getting stained all over my pew, I'm going to find out whether or not I really believe the gospel or not. I went to a Sexaholics Anonymous meeting once. Um, wasn't really my, my problem, the core of my problem, but I was looking anywhere and everywhere for help. And uh, I remember one of the old heads, one of the old guys who had been years and years ago, and now he keeps on coming to love other men and to help other men through this struggle. I remember what he said to me. Never forget, I, I remember his name to this very, very day. He had a German name with the umlauts over the U. I'd, it sticks in my head. He said, I want you to see your father. I want you to know what kind of God you have. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to see your father hugs you, showers you with kisses, even as you smell like prostitutes and pigs. And I use the nice words in the words that he said. If the church doesn't really believe in gospel, its members will be too disgusted by that prodigal smell to actually issue any kisses when kisses are needed. And I will just tell you from experience, when, when prodigals experience disgust here, they go looking for the real Jesus somewhere else. And well, they should. The Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. Think about that phrase, despising shame. Shame is when you are despised. Shame is when other people look down on you and maybe you buy into it. I deserve for people to look down on me. The gospel says that as shame is looking down on people, Jesus is looking down on shame. Jesus says, I don't care anything about that shame. Forget that shame. That shame ought to be shamed. When the world throws shame at you, Jesus associates with you. Jesus, hey, listen to this. Jesus sits down at the loser's lunchroom table just to be with you. His presence goes with you because he is despising shame. He is putting shame to shame. And that's what the church ought to do. How do we battle shame here in the church? 
especially as it relates to adultery. I have, I have just a few pointers here. Number one, we need to normalize it. We need to normalize adultery. I'm not making an excuse for adultery. I'm not condoning adultery by any means. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It is a, it's a terribly painful sin. For the adulterer, for those who are hurt by the adulterer, it brings destruction, it destroys families. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But you need to hear that your preacher's been there. You need to hear that one out of every five people statistically in here have been there. Why? You're not alone. You're not weird. You're not less than. You belong here. You belong here. You don't stick out any worse than any of the rest of these prodigals here in this room. It's sin. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others. Join the club. Here's the club. We need to practice acceptance. And again, I know this can be tricky because we're not condoning sin. That's not what we mean by acceptance. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church because there was a man there who was living in an adulterous situation and the whole church, he said, was arrogant about it. Who is anybody else to judge us over this? Well, okay, sin's not okay. Adultery is not okay. That's not what we're saying here. But, but when a brother or a sister is struggling to do right, and, and believe me, there is an addictive element in most affairs where I'm struggling. I don't want this. I can't quit this, but I don't want this anymore. That is not the time to cast people out of the family. We know this. We know that when there's an alcoholic among us, we never say, you take one more drink and you're out of this family. You, you take one more hit off that pipe and you're out of this family. Just so. It's highly inappropriate. You see that man one more time. You see that woman one more time. We're disfellowshipping you. You're out of this family. You're not one of us anymore. That's not the time for that. That's not what Paul was talking about to the Corinthians. We say, I'm so glad you're here. We are your family and we're never going to quit being your family. We're here for you. We're so glad you're here. We speak hope, not fear. We speak hope, not fear. There's already far enough fear to go around when we get into an affair situation. Fears about divorce. Fears about finances. Oh man, divorce will break you. Divorce will break you. Don't do it. Fears about custody. Am I ever going to get to have my kids with me? Well, what kind of custody situation? Fears about rejection, fears about abandonment. There's enough fear already. The church speaks hope. The church speaks hope. You were made for so much more than your affair is telling you right now. Your affair is lying to you. Your affair is telling you you're no good. Your affair is telling you you'll never get past this. Your affair is telling you you don't deserve to be here. Your affair is telling you, you see, I told you you weren't worth your fair is a liar. God loves you no matter what you've done. You're not saved by the fact that you've avoided an affair. You're saved by Jesus and his blood. So are all your other brothers and sisters. We say Jesus will see you through this to the other side. And so will we. How will you physically, tangibly, visibly know that Jesus is walking with you? Because we're going to be walking with you. And you're going to see Jesus in us. Don't join the naysayers and speak fear. Speak hope. Even when it feels stupid to speak hope. Even when you're saying you can make it in the back of your mind. I don't know if they can make it. We risk looking stupid to speak hope. Because we believe. We believe we have great hope in Christ. And that he can do anything. Even in the worst situations. 
The church is a gospel community that defeats shame because Jesus despises shame. And the church takes up the shape of Jesus Christ. Not only do we believe the gospel here, we believe in family here. Jonathan Benz wrote the book, The Recovery-Minded Church. It's a great read. It's more about the recovery uh, industry, and yet it, it relates a whole lot to what we're talking about this morning. He says this, Prodigal children's best chances of getting home depend on building reservoirs of connectedness. I like that image. Reservoirs of connectedness with God, one another, and oneself for when the tough times hit. When somebody gets entangled in an affair, the most effective influence that we have to help them back onto the right path is the influence that we have built beforehand. It's the investment that we've made in the relationship before we hit the crisis. It's just too late to build it once the crisis hits. That's not saying you can't do anything. It's not saying that you can't be helpful, but it's saying that you need the reservoir of connectedness built up before the crisis hits. You can bet that influence is going to be tested to the breaking point by the affair. It's no secret me and Priscilla have both been in affairs. Priscilla, y'all, y'all really don't know this. She was an extrovert, an extrovert before she got here. You think she's an extrovert. She was an extrovert before she got here. Ten times you've never seen Priscilla as extroverted as she used to be. We were in a congregation of 500 people. And I, I'm not exaggerating at all. Priscilla was the most connected person in that entire church of 500 people. I don't know anybody else who had more connections than she did. By the end of her walk, when she came full circle through the valley, finally to reconciliation at the end, there was only one friendship that made it all the way. Just one. One friendship that walked through the valley one friendship who spoke truth. I love this girl. She spoke truth. But she also said, I am here for you no matter what. No matter what you do, I love you. I'm here with you. One. One friendship. I'm not saying that was the only one person who loved Priscilla. Don't misunderstand me. There was plenty of people that loved Priscilla. I'm only saying there's one connection that held up to the fire of this trial in the end and saw her all the way home. Deep reservoirs of connectedness are are needed when you're talking about walking someone through an affair because everything in that reservoir is going to be called upon in that fire. You just don't get that by doing church on a surface level. When you're in an affair, are you going to call somebody that you've just seen on Sunday mornings? There's no way. There's no, that, that's, the, that's not the kind of connection that's going to hold up to this fire, that's going to be helpful and a, and a tow line, an anchor in this time of trial. No, it's deep connections. Um, Priscilla and Lydia are leading a freedom group right now. And I think the tagline of freedom groups really just says it all. Freedom is found in small groups. When we get into small groups with one another, places where we can take that mask off, places where I can be myself, and you get to know me as a person, and I get to know you as a person, that, that's where people are set free and chains are broken. That's where reservoirs of connectedness are built for the tough times. A church that places emphasis on fellowship, a church that actually lives and functions like a family, that's a church that builds connections, and it's the connections that hold us together when stuff hits the fan. That's what we're talking about. Reservoirs, deep reservoirs of connectedness. 
Your church has to have a gospel culture. Your church has to have a family culture if you want any hope of helping a brother or a sister through an affair. And I realize I've not hardly said anything about adultery this whole morning. You might be thinking, this is a lesson on the seventh commandment. Where's the adultery stuff? We've just talked about church culture this, mor- this morning. When, when are we getting to the adultery? Listen to me. I've seen it from the inside. I've been there. I was highly connected in the church leadership at the time. I saw everything from the inside. This is the stuff that matters. It doesn't matter what your opinion about divorce and remarriage is. It's not going to help you through an affair. It's just not. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but it's not going to help you through an affair. It doesn't matter that you know that adultery is a sin. It doesn't matter that you read all these verses through the Bible that say, don't do it, don't do it. It's not going to help you. This, a gospel culture, a family culture, that's what matters. That's what we have to have. Or else you're going to get into the affair and you're going to realize, I don't have anything. I have no resources to to make it through this thing. Somebody in your church family is going to get into it and you're going to be, I have no idea what to do for them. I, I don't know how to help them. This is the stuff that matters. Do they see hope here? When they come to church, do they see hope here? Because I promise you, they're going to be struggling to believe it. They're going to need people that believe it for them for a time. They're going to need to come here and say, I I, I don't know. I don't know whether I have any hope, but I see that you guys do have hope. And that's going to be the lifeline. If we believe there's hope in Jesus, this is the time to show it in this crisis, where it's needed most. I'll close with this. In her memoir, Marianne Bird writes about her physical deformities that really plagued her throughout her childhood. She had a cleft palate. She had one deaf ear. She said her feet were lopsided. There was scars across her disfigured face. And she already felt enough shame about that as it was, but she said my, my peers growing up through school, they didn't help anything. They'd say, Mary Ann Bird, what happened to your face? She said, I'd lie. Oh, I cut it on a glass. Very painful growing up. She said the most dreaded day in the whole school year was the day of the whisper test. It was a a hearing test that they administered to all the children. Think a, a large classroom in which the teacher calls the kids up one by one to her desk. And what she does, they they block off their ear one at a time and she'll whisper some random phrase into the other ear. And um, if they can repeat it back to her, will you pass the whisper test? It's on the sky is blue. Hey, you got new shoes. Some, some random phrase. And Marianne was already so ashamed of her deformities and her deaf ear that she said every year I would go up and, you know, I'd block off the deaf ear when it was time to test that ear. But when they tested the other one, I'd just cup this one so maybe I could hear and she'd strain to hear with her good ear so that she didn't fail that whisper test in front of all her peers. She came into Miss Leonard's class. Miss Leonard was the most beloved teacher in the whole school. Everybody wanted to be Miss Leonard's favorite. Everybody wanted to impress Miss Leonard. It was even more important this year than ever to not fail Miss Leonard. And she was finally called up to the desk. She said, God must have, God must have spoke through Miss Leonard that year. Those seven words that she whispered changed my entire life. Because when I got up there, 
And she whispered into my ear, it wasn't, Marianne, the sky's blue. It wasn't, Marianne, you've got no shoes. Miss Leonard whispered, I wish you were my little girl. Those seven words of acceptance changed Marianne Bird for the rest of her life. And the fact of the matter is, every single one of us is covering over shame somewhere in our life. Every single one of us has something that we don't want to see. And we come here because we, we desperately want to hear, believe we might hear, a whisper from God that says, I wish you were my little boy. I wish you were my little girl. I love you. It's that whisper that banishes shame. It's that whisper that lets you know you're home. Do people hear that whisper at Central? If you would, please pray with me. Father God, we, we're all prodigals. We confess what we are and who we are before you. We confess our great need for you. Father, if ever anything wells up in my spirit that causes me to look down on someone else in their sin, in their struggle, Father, I pray that you would remind me what I am. And you would remind me that I belong here, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. That even when I am faithless, you are faithful and you love me into an eternal relationship on the basis of your love and your love alone. Father, teach me to live every single day a saved prodigal. To know the character of a father who kisses me even when I stink. Father, teach us to embody Jesus Christ towards one another. That when our brothers and sisters come here in the worst struggle of their life, they don't see disgust. They don't experience shame heaped on top of shame. They don't hear fear. They hear hope and love and acceptance. They feel the touch of Jesus Christ himself through the touch of their brothers and their sisters who are the body of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that right now you would be setting people free. Setting people free by the power of the gospel in which we do believe. People who are right now, right now entangled in sin, sin that is leading to death, sin that is causing painful destruction. Father, I pray that you would give them the power to take a step of faith in the love of Jesus that they might be set free from their sin. People who have distanced themselves from the action of the sin, but the sin is still there. The sin is still stealing their life away, preventing them from being the son or the daughter who lives without chains. Father, I pray that you would be setting people free who are still held by a sin that never has healed. Father, I pray that they would know the love of Jesus and they would rest in your grace and be free indeed. And Father, I pray that you would raise up this congregation as a beacon of light and hope and love, that our whole community would know people are loved here. 
You go to that church, there's Jesus to meet you there. There's Jesus to heal your sins there. There's Jesus to set you back into the way of life there and to turn from you from your sins, not in shame, but for joy. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this community as it is in heaven. And we pray together now as a church family. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We thank you again for joining us this week at Central. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified in your life today. Thank you.